Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Warning. Kinda Murdery contains adult themes, explicit language, and descriptions of violence. It is not suitable for anyone. And we recommend you stop listening now. True crime with a dash of the paranormal, the garish, the strange, and the darkly comic. I'm Zevin Odelberg, host of Kinda Murdery, a podcast that's about more than just murder. It's my very own pocket dimension, home to a curated collection of bizarre and compelling stories, the unsolved, the unsettling, and the unbelievable. I cover it all, just so long as it's Kinda Murdery. Like it says in the intro, I am Zevin Odelberg, and this is Kinda Murdery. Hey, this is kind of cool. Uh, kind of Murdery made a couple of charts earlier this week. We were number 93 in the top 100 true crime podcasts on Good Pods. That's the big list with Morbid and My Favorite Murder and Crime Junkie and all those great shows. And we were number 29 on the indie true crime list. So thank you so much for listening. It really does make a difference. Please do tell your friends and family to listen too, and if you could take just a second to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, I sure would appreciate it. All right, let's jump right into it. You have found your way to part two of Pet of the Ox and the Alphabet Barrel Murder. That's right, I said part two. So if you haven't heard part one yet, go back and listen to it and then rejoin us. We'll save you a seat. If you'll recall from Sunday's show, Back in 1903, a curious housewife named Mrs. Frances Connors in Alphabet City, Manhattan, happened across a perfectly good overcoat thrown across a barrel at the corner of Avenue D and 11th Street. She wondered why anyone would discard a perfectly good overcoat, and when she went to investigate and lifted the coat off the barrel, she screamed because inside the barrel she discovered a man who had been strangled with a strip of gunny sack and had his throat slit ear to ear, apparently with a stiletto. The authorities' investigation uncovered that this was a murder committed by the Black Hand, or Cosa Nostra, what we more commonly call the Mafia. The identity of the murdered man was not immediately uncovered until an anonymous letter led police to Sing Sing Prison. I'm going to rewind the story for just about a minute to allow you to settle back into the narrative, so now if you will, and if you would please, join me as we uncover what truths we can and solve what mysteries we may. Kinda Murderies, Pedo the Ox and the Alphabet Barrel Murder, Part 2, starts now. Joseph Petrosino was at the time in the Italian squad of the New York Detective Bureau. He received an anonymous letter telling him to keep off the case and describing the murder as a vendetta, which seemed to the writer of the letter sufficient reason for the barrel crime. Petrosino showed this letter to me, 
Here was a clue worth following. The writer was evidently afraid to divulge his name even to the police out of fear of the vengeance of the terrible Black Hand. I knew of no man so well qualified to handle the case as Petrosino himself, so after carefully thinking out a plan of procedure, I suggested that he go to Sing Sing Prison, where several of the Lupo Morello band were serving terms for counterfeiting. Petrosino took with him a photograph of the barrel victim and showed it to several of the convicts whom he knew to be identified with the black hand. They too professed ignorance of the dead man's identity. It seemed as if it was to be the same story over again. But at last, Petrosino showed the photograph to Giuseppe de Prima and without telling him of the murder asked him if he knew whose likeness it was. De Prima glanced at the detective and alarm showed on his face. He clutched at the pasteboard on which was the likeness of the murdered man. That is Mourinho Benedetto, my brother-in-law, he cried. What has happened? The detective told him that Benedetto was murdered. Giuseppe de Prima felt a trembling like a leaf. Fear distorted his features. He knew the power that was behind the knife that had slit the throat of Mourinho Benedetto, his brother-in-law. He overcame his fear and it turned to anger. He cursed the murderers from his cell. He shook his fist against the bare walls and he swore a vendetta against the men who had slain his relative by marriage. When he was calmer, De Prima convinced Petrosino beyond reasonable doubt that he had identified the victim correctly. He described a watch chain which had been found in one of Benedetto's pockets and described the curious crucifix which had been found with the body. He told of the scar on the murdered man's face and other unmistakable marks of identification. Benedetto, he said, was a stonecutter and lived in Buffalo. For some months he had been out of work and De Prima believed he had recently been operating with a band of counterfeiters in New York. This, of course, was the Lupo Morello gang, but De Prima, for reasons of his own, would not tell too much, nor would he tell if he knew who was likely to have committed the murder. His was vengeance, and he did not intend to aid the law to take over his prerogative. He steadfastly denied that he had the slightest idea who was the guilty man or men. At last it was learned who the barrel victim was, and Petrosino returned to New York. Together we went to police headquarters and examined all the letters and papers taken from the men arrested as suspects in the case. Among the possessions of Luciano Perino, or Petto the Ox, I found a pawn ticket for a watch which had been pledged in a Bowery pawn shop for one dollar on the day of the murder. We sent to Buffalo for Benedetto's wife. To the minutest detail she described the watch which her husband had worn. The one which the ox had pawned was procured and it tallied to every particular with the woman's description. She was certain when it was shown to her that it had belonged to her husband. Before seeing it she described certain markings and engravings which could have only been known to a person familiar with it. With the evidence in hand, Petto the Ox was indicted by the grand jury for murder in the first degree. The other suspects had been held on a charge of murder without bail. But because the evidence was not sufficient to hold them, Magistrate Barlow turned them out. The Secret Service continued to watch these men, however, and what developed from this surveillance will be shared with you soon. At this time came fresh evidence of the existence of the Black Hand organization. Petto the Ox was apparently penniless and counsel would have been provided for him by the state, but suddenly, apparently from nowhere, a great fund was raised. High-priced counsel was engaged to fight his case in court and money was spent freely in a campaign for his release. This money, for the greater part, was contributed by members of the Black Hand. Some of it was wrung from terrorized Italians, some of it was begged from the Campari or godfathers of members of the gang. Every Sicilian has two Campari, 
and they are bound to aid their charges when they are in trouble. Meanwhile, the police worked tirelessly in efforts to accumulate evidence against Petto. The watch, which he had pawned, was the only incriminating evidence they unearthed. I was morally certain who had murdered Benedetto, and reports from my men strengthened my belief. From information in my possession, I was certain the Black Hand organization was furnishing the funds to conduct Petto's defense. It was to my interest to find out just who were in this organization and just where the money came from, for I knew the band to be engaged in counterfeiting. It's interesting because as I've mentioned before, as we've discussed before, the two goals of the Secret Service are the physical protection of the president and the protection of the money supply rooting out of counterfeiters. Now, when you just sort of think of that abstractly, you don't necessarily think that chasing down counterfeit money is going to lead you directly to a mob barrel murder. I also find it sort of philosophically, academically interesting that the Secret Service's two jobs are protect the integrity of the president and protect the integrity of American money. Of course, practically, that does make sense, but it's also hard not to wonder or feel like there's a certain symbolic synergy there as well. America being the consumer society that we are. All right, back to the murder investigation and the musings of Secret Service Chief William J. Flynn. He's just said, It was in my interest to find out just who were in this organization and just where the money came from, for I knew the band to be engaged in counterfeiting. It was at this time that I learned a great deal about the organization of the Black Hand. While Petto was in the tombs, that's a fun old-timey metaphor for prison, I ascertained that every member of the band was from Corleone. Wow, a name made very famous by the Godfather, of course. A town about 27 miles from Palermo, Sicily. It was in Palermo that Joseph Petrosino was later murdered while executing a mission for Commissioner Bingham of the New York Police Department. So the police officer who identified the murder victim later became some kind of an international undercover spy for a New York PD operation against the Italian Mafia. I would like to know more about that. Okay, I promise not to interrupt the story quite so much with my own musings. Let's get back to it. I, I being William J. Flynn, was seeking to get one or more of my operatives into the inner circle of the Black Hand. And I learned that in order to accomplish this, the man must be from Corleone, or he must come recommended by a member of the society who came from Corleone or lived there at present. Petta the Ox was in the tombs four months awaiting trial. During this time, the police bent every effort to produce evidence against him which would hold in court. Meanwhile, the Black Hand was raising money for his defense, and my men, the Secret Service, were working into the confidence of the Black Handers. Nevertheless, scarcely a single piece of evidence which would have held for a moment in a court of law was unearthed by the police. Petto steadfastly denied his guilt, of course. There was no witness to the crime. Petto had not been seen with the victim by any person who was available as a witness, and the watch was the only slender clue that connected him with the crime. There were a dozen different ways in which that could be accounted for. Petto's lawyer asked that the prisoner be released on his own recognizance on the grounds that there was not sufficient evidence upon which to bring the accused to trial with any fair hope of a conviction. The barrel murder was more of a mystery than ever. The one man to whom circumstances pointed as guilty of the crime was discharged by the court because there was not sufficient evidence against him to make a conviction even possible. The police tried other clues. They worked more upon the theory that there was a woman in the case. 
they tried to find some person with a grievance against Benedetto, but they failed. Petto disappeared from his accustomed haunts, but the eyes of the Secret Service followed him, and the long arm of Uncle Sam hovered over him, ready to strike. What happened to Petto the Ox, and how Secret Service Chief William J. Flynn finally solved the mystery of the murder of Morania Benedetto, which was never solved by the police, well, you'll find that out after a super quick break. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we're back. I hope that wasn't too painful. Hey, before we jump back into the story, I wanted to remind you, as I often do, of the free three-digit number, 988, the 24 hours a day, seven days a week, toll-free lifeline, 988, that you can call anytime to receive immediate counseling for substance use, mental health, or suicidal thoughts. So, if you find yourself in a very dark place, please do call 988. And please remember that you are loved and the world is a better place with you in it. If you'd like to reach out to someone just to make a connection and talk about your life, you can also reach out to me, kindamurdery at gmail.com or at kindamurdery on all social media. Or you can call the Kinda Murdery hotline, 888-MURDERY. That's 888-687-3379. I would love it if you would share a personal Kinda Murdery story from your own life. A few episodes ago, I did an episode called Kind of Murdery Stories from Zevin's Real Life, My Real Life. So if you're wondering what to share, you could go back and listen to that. But really, it can be anything. Kind of Murdery doesn't have to be about murder. It can just be strange, intriguing, scary, fun, even funny. And also, if you're a person like me, I have cerebral palsy, a person who is living with a disability, and you would like to share something unique about your life experience, something that you feel like doesn't just occur to most people, please do that, either through email or social media, as I mentioned, kindamurdery at gmail.com or at kindamurdery on all social media, or do it by calling that kindamurdery hotline 888-MURDERY. And you don't have to be disabled. You can just share something unique about your own life. My goal here is that we hopefully, as a community, and then Building that out as a country and a world can start to build just a little bit more empathy. People who live differently than us or people that we don't see on a daily basis, it's too easy to begin to feel like they're others. To forget that they're human beings just like us, driven by the same hopes and dreams and fears and insecurities and all that. So that's the truth of things that I'm hoping we can all share together. Also, on a lighter note, I've been trying to figure out what the name for our community for Kind of Murdery listeners should be. I know shows like My Favorite Murder call their listeners Murderinos. What do you think Kind of Murdery listeners should be called? If you have any suggestions, please send them to me. And if I pick your suggestion, I'll read your name on the air and send you a mysterious Kind of Murdery prize. 
All right, thanks for giving me this time. Let's get back to the story. Pedo the Ox, released by the courts because there was not sufficient evidence to bring him to trial for the murder of Mourinho Benedetto, disappeared from his accustomed haunts in New York. Whether the police followed his movements, I do not know. But the eyes of the Secret Service were ceaselessly on him, and the long arm of Uncle Sam hovered ever over him, ready to strike. Aside from a matter of pride, it was my business to follow Pedo, for I knew him to be identified with a band of counterfeiters I was trying to break up. The very fact that he shunned New York after his release strengthened my growing belief in the existence of a black hand society. There was not sufficient evidence in the hands of the police to make him fear them. New York was the headquarters for his band, yet he fled to Pittston, Pennsylvania, and we knew that he feared something. It was reasonable to suppose that if he was the murderer of Benedetto, he feared vengeance. In Pittston, on the outskirts of the city, Petto lived in a small house where many a foul plot was hatched and many a blackmailing scheme was originated, with Petto as its master plotter. The decent Italians of the district feared him as they would a plague. Even the poorest of them were not safe from his depredations, and the most powerful were his easy prey. One night, the ox was sitting in a comfortable room of his little house. Doubtless he was gloating over some rich haul or plotting some new trick by which to wring gold from an industrious neighbor. Outside, a scotch mist chilled all things, and Petto hugged the fire for warmth. A shrill whistle pierced the night. Petto must have started, for he was not a brave man, though he held cheaply human life when it was someone else's. From his pocket, he snatched a heavy revolver. At the same time, he quickly turned out the lights that no man might see him through the window. Petto the Ox knew the meaning of that shrill whistle. Cautiously, he crept toward the door of his house. Slowly, he opened it and peered through the mist. On his quickness of eye depended his life, and it was hard to see. Something must have moved in the darkness, for Petto fired once. At the same instant, five quick stabs of red pierced the curtain of mist. The ox fell, dropped, as drops the animal for whom he was named when struck with a poleaxe. Five leaden slugs had found his body. One had carried away a part of the hand with which he gripped his own revolver, which fell fully loaded by his side. The murderer of Petto took no chances. Lest the ox should be playing possum, he sank a dagger into Petto's heart. So far as the police records of any city go, the slayer of Petto has never been discovered. Nothing which might help materially in the solution of the mystery was found, but about Petto's neck hung a little brass crucifix, just such a one as was found in the body of the barrel victim, with a skull and crossbones beneath the feet of the figure on the cross. Here was another mystery, and yet it confirmed my theory of the first. It started a train of thought on which I worked to a certain conclusion, and afterward my ideas were confirmed by the confessions of black handers with whom I talked. In my mind, there was no doubt that the slaying of the ox was an act of vengeance. The most reasonable supposition, I was already morally certain that Petto had killed Benedetto, was that he had died at the hand of a relative of Benedetto's. It was but a step further to attribute the killing of Benedetto himself to vengeance. Now, for a moment, I must lead you back again. In January 1903, several months before the barrel murder baffled the police of New York, Three Italians were arrested in Yonkers, New York, charged with counterfeiting $5 notes of the National Iron Bank of Morristown, New Jersey. These notes were being imported from Italy by the Lupo Morello gang. The three men arrested were Isidoro Crocevera, Salvatore Romano, and Giuseppe De Prima. 
The last, you will remember, was the brother-in-law of the barrel victim and was the first to identify him as Mourinho Benedetto. When I took hold of the case, the Yonkers, New York police told me that there had been a fourth man in the company of the three arrested, but that he had gotten away. I knew at once that this man, the fourth man, was the treasurer of the crew passing the counterfeit money. The treasurer, with the bills on his person, always lurks in the background, and if the others get into trouble, he immediately flees with the bulk of the counterfeit notes. His first move is to go to the headquarters of the gang, where all the machinery of the Black Hand Society is immediately set in motion in the effort to win the release of those captured. The description that the Yonkers police gave me of the escaped man was so accurate that I at once identified him as a counterfeiter known in the files of the Secret Service as Number 6. Incidentally, I knew Crocevera and De Prima were members of the Corleone Band, in other words, members of the Black Hand. The men who made the arrests in Yonkers went with me to New York, and I stationed them where they could get a good view of Number 6. They at once declared that he was the man who had escaped from them, and on February 19th, we arrested him. He gave his name as Giuseppe Gallimbardo and was sentenced to serve six years in prison. Meanwhile, I several times questioned Crocevera, De Prima, and Romano. I knew that none of these men would talk. If any one of them did and was released, his body would doubtless be found, broken, and mutilated within 24 hours. On one occasion, I had Crocevera and De Prima brought to my office at the same time. I left Crocevera in the outer office and with a great show of secrecy kept De Prima locked up with me in the inner office for more than an hour. Crocevera, of course, knew that he was in there, and my scheme was to make him think that De Prima had confessed, thus leading the other prisoner, in a spirit of spite, to incriminate his companion and perhaps divulge many secrets of the band. After I thought Crocevera had had time to think things over, I dismissed De Prima. As he left my office, I went to the door with him, and in sight and hearing of Crocevera, shook him cordially by the hand and bade him goodbye heartily, as if I was much gratified by what he had told me. As a matter of fact, he had told me next to nothing, but I wished to strengthen Crocevera's suspicions against him. The ruse was fruitless. Crocevera told me absolutely nothing. He did, however, convey to the leaders of the Black Hand news of all that had transpired in my office. This I learned later through a number of different channels. He gave it out that De Prima had confessed all and that every member of the band was in danger. Although my little piece of acting did not result in forcing Crocevera to disgorge secrets of the Black Hand, it had convinced him of De Prima's duplicity and had far-reaching results of an unexpected and startling nature. The members of the society had no reason to doubt the truth of Crocevera's accusations against De Prima, and when we arrested the treasurer, the man called Number Six, they were absolutely convinced that the prisoner de prima had betrayed them. The three men captured in Yonkers were sent to Sing Sing, convicted of passing counterfeit money. The fact that de prima himself was serving a term in prison did not excuse him in the eyes of the Black Hand Society, which believed he had betrayed its secrets. According to the tenets of the organization, de prima should be punished by death, but de prima was in prison, and it did not suit the desires of the Black Hand to wait for vengeance until he was released. The anger of the Sicilian flares up like loose powder when it is kindled, and revenge must be quick, if possible. According to the unwritten law of the Black Hand, as De Prima was where he could not be punished, his nearest male relative was marked to pay the penalty. De Prima had no male blood relatives, and so, at a conference of the leaders of the society, it was decided that his brother-in-law should die instead. 
This was Mourinho Benedetto, the man whose body was found in the barrel covered by an overcoat. Pedo the Ox was selected to commit the crime, so Pedo the Ox was chosen to kill Benedetto, the barrel victim. In turn, Pedo was shot to death by a kinsman of Benedetto. Many suppose that the avenger of the barrel murder was De Prima himself, who in the natural course of events would have been called upon to act. This is because De Prima was released from Sing Sing at about the time of Pedo's death. But I can say for a certainty that De Prima did not shoot Il Bove the Ox, for he was still in prison when Pedo answered the shrill whistle which drew him to his death. The police will also tell you that De Prima, when released, attempted to flee to Palermo and that he died at sea, probably at the hands of a mafia assassin. And that is the conclusion of the case of Pedo the Ox and the Alphabet Barrel Murder. So the Black Hand, Cosa Nostra, the Mafia, believed that De Prima had ratted out their secrets to the Secret Service regarding the counterfeiting ring. But De Prima hadn't. Because they couldn't kill De Prima who was in prison, and because he didn't have an immediate male relative, they killed De Prima's brother-in-law. And by they, I mean they had. Pedo the Ox killed De Prima's brother-in-law. And then, Pedo the Ox himself was killed, likely to cover their tracks because if there's one thing both pirates and mobsters know, it's that dead men tell no tales. Here's what I find interesting. I suppose not surprising, but interesting. You could argue in the endless chain of cause and effect that in fact, the murderer, or at least the killer, of the barrel murder victim, Mourinho Benedetto, Pedo the Ox, and De Prima, was actually Secret Service Chief William J. Flynn. Because it was his bit of office play-acting, the friendliness and handshaking he engaged in with De Prima in front of Crochevera, that convinced Crochevera that De Prima had flipped on the black hand and set off the chain of triple murder that this story was about. And so I ask you, who killed the barrel victim, Mourinho Benedetto? Was it Pedo the Ox, Il Bove, or was it in fact Chief of the United States Secret Service, William J. Flynn? And does he also bear responsibility for the subsequent murders of Pedo the Ox and Giuseppe De Prima? Let me know what you think. I'm Zevin Odelberg. And this has been Kinda Murdery.